Mortimer, Episode 9. Thank you for tuning into Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. When I told my boyfriend that I needed to break our plans for the fall festival to visit the radio station, he was jealous, obviously. But here I am with my chance at stardom. Lily Lou's best friend, Cindy. Enjoy the show. A silver-haired man with thick bifocal glasses stood behind a counter sorting stacks of correspondence, and he looked up as Mortimer stepped up to the counter. Mr. Iscariot, he managed to smile, how do you do? I've a very important correspondence, Mortimer declared, pulling the sweat-stained letter out of his soggy lapel. Ah, yes, the postman cringed and accepted the envelope. Is this all? This letter is top secret and must only be delivered by your best and most trusted manservant. Oh, I assure you, it will be delivered to, the man read the address, Chicago, safely. I shall need a complete list of whose hand shall carry my letter throughout its entire journey. Oh, I'm afraid I do not have a list of letter carriers between here and Chicago, sir. Inconceivable! Mortimer's eyes bulged out of his indignant face. Do you not keep a transition log? What kind of an antiquated facility is this? Well, I promise you that your letter will leave in the morning and arrive quite safely. Tomorrow? Mortimer was undone. Were the president here, he would shut this place down once and for all. Excuse me? Mortimer leaned over the counter. The civil liberties of the entire continent are being compromised, and the contents of this correspondence is this great country's only hope for justice and truth to reign once more. Oh, this shall not be borne. Mortimer threw his finger into the air. Call President Woodrow Wilson. Where the King of England, this shall not stand. Uh, Mr. Iscariot, you must calm yourself. The postman straightened his linen-collared shirt. You're quite out of line. There was the sound of a doorbell from behind, and a voice was saying, Now, children, this is a post office. This is where... Her voice was interrupted by the sounds of screaming. Ah! I can see his butt hair! Sister, what is that? The postmaster's bushy white brows drew inward in confusion, and Mortimer bent over the counter, trying to gain his attention. Paul Revere, patriot of the American Revolution, rode day and night to deliver news that saved this country from certain devastation. Shall you follow in the footsteps of this great soldier, or fall into the clutches of evil itself? Mama! What on earth? 
The postman ignored Mortimer's words, for he saw that the nun was staring at Mortimer, her jaw hanging open in horror, her face unaccustomarily pale. In temporary abandon of his reverie, Mortimer turned toward the commotion. The entrance to the previously vacant post office was now cluttered with at least a dozen tiny midgets, accompanied by a nun. Some of the children were pointing and laughing, while others stood there, their faces frozen in consternation. Sister, what is it? The postmaster asked above the jeers of the children. At his voice, the sister seemed to snap out of the momentary shock that had befuddled her senses. She immediately slapped her hands over her eyes, and she shrieked along with the children, "'Lord, have mercy!' She whirled around, and once her back was towards the men, she threw one of her arms out protectively like a bird might when drawing in its chicks. "'Children, quick! Turn around! Go out the door!' "'Sister Agnes, please!' the postman called out impotently, and then, with horror, he watched as the children scattered in all directions, and the nun, who was still walking with one hand over her eyes, ran smack into the door. "'Sister Agnes!' the postmaster yelped, as the nun fell in a rumpled heap onto the floor. The children began shrieking as mass hysteria broke out. "'Oh, dear!' The postman rushed to her side. "'She's dead!' screamed a little girl with pigtails. "'What about my letter?' Mortimer called above the insanity. "'Have you made your decision? I do suspect you shall choose to be Sir Revere, though your distraction does obligate me to call into question your level of patriotism.' "'You idiot!' The postman looked up from the unconscious nun. "'Call the doctor, quick!' "'I can see the naughty man's bottom!' Why are his panties yellow? This letter must leave today in order to get to Chicago on time, because he peed in them. Hey, mister, why's your butt hanging out? A little brown-haired boy asked as he poked a curious finger into Mortimer's crevice. My God! Mortimer grabbed his behind protectively and leapt away. If you must know, you depraved little baboon, it is a highly superior ventilation system. If you had any sense, you would rip your pants open too. Mortimer turned away from the child and, giving up on the postmaster, he helped himself behind the desk. To do the job of the postmaster is highly degrading, but I must see this through. Mortimer began to rummage through the office supplies while children continued running about screaming. He, of course, paid no notice to the several young boys who had followed his advice and were now ripping at each other's trousers. "'Now my bottom can be bent a gator, too!' cried a freckle-faced lad. "'Gator me! Gator me!' "'That's the man from the candy store!' a blonde cried above the din. She pointed at Mortimer. "'He almost killed my brother!' "'Susie! Fetch the doctor!' Ignoring her observation, the postman grabbed her arm urgently. Hurry! But before she could obey, the door opened again, and a very weary patrolman stepped into the post office, holding a letter in the palm of his hand. His eyes widened in horror at the scene. The nun passed out on the floor, the postman on his hands and knees by her side, and children running around, depantizing each other. Then he saw a very familiar character behind the counter, rummaging through the mail. What the... The postman grabbed the officer's pant leg desperately. Officer Orange, help! Class, get out your tablets for arithmetic, Miss Hartman ordered. She held a ruler in her right hand, tapping it rhythmically in her left. 
as the class scuffled around in their desks, obediently shifting their new supplies onto wooden school desks. Class was an abominable bore. Percy rolled his eyes to the ceiling. His head was propped up on his right hand, his body about as slouched as he could muster, without actually sinking out of his chair. Not that he hadn't also tried that. But Miss Hartman was being a bore. Maybe it was what his father had said whenever his mamma was being a drag. She must be having her monthly woman time. Whenever Percy's mamma was having her woman time, he and his pa stayed pretty much clear of the house. Otherwise they'd be subjected to screaming, cleaning, and, of course, the inevitable litany of whining and tears about how her boys don't take care of mamma or clean up after themselves, along with other such ridiculous bits of nonsense. Percy did plenty for his mamma. Sure, he did leave his laundry out for her to pick up, but she liked it sorted out in a certain way anyhow. She did complain that she was the only one that did any cooking in the house, but the last Percy had heard, cooking was woman's work. His pa already gave him a hard time about being a mama's boy, so the last thing he wanted to do was reinforce that reputation. Nope. Percy was a man. He didn't have long hair because his mama wanted him to. He had long hair because the ladies loved it. At this change in topic, Percy allowed his eyes to roll to the right, where Abigail Boone sat, with her arithmetic board positioned squarely in the center of her desk. She was looking rather lovely in a low-cut ivory dress. Miss Hartman was at the board, writing with a squeaky piece of white chalk, which offered Percy an unsupervised moment of pleasure. He lowered his green eyes toward Abigail's bountiful breasts. They heaved up and down as she breathed gently, her blue eyes focused on the formulas being written on the board at the front of the schoolroom. Percy had always had a thing for brunettes. He licked his lips and leaned a bit farther forward, hoping to indulge in a better look. He felt his chair jerk violently with the force of a kick from behind. Immediately irritated, Percy whirled around and glared at the pig-nosed blonde in the chair behind him. "'Knock it off!' she hissed. "'Back off, Anna Grace. You're a pervert, Percy. You're just jealous,' Percy sneered. "'Your breasts are the size of grapes.' Anna Grace's face turned beet red and smoke all but came out of her ears. A snicker rose from amongst the students. Chalk in hand, Miss Hartman whirled around at the sound of their voices. She narrowed her eyes at the feud going on between Percy and Anna Grace. Immediately identifying her victim, she put her hands on a hip. Percy Binkley, where is your arithmetic board? Dog ate it. His one-liner received a chuckle from some of his classmates. Percy looked around and grinned, receiving the approval from his cohort with pride. Percy Binkley, come here. I'm quite comfortable here, Miss Hartman. That did it. The schoolmistress dropped her piece of chalk onto the desk and stormed to the back of the room, her pupils watching wide-eyed to see what would happen next. She grabbed Percy by the ear. You come with me this instant. Ow! Percy let out a prebubescent squeak and stumbled after her. She pushed him down into a chair that was in the front corner of the room. You shall wear the dunce hat for the remainder of the day, and then afterward you will clean the entire schoolroom, wall to wall, ceiling to floor. Percy's classmates were laughing, but this time he didn't think it was funny. He flushed a deep shade of red, and the last thing he saw before the dunce hat slid over his eyes was the triumphant grin of little Miss Grapeboob in the back of the classroom. 
Now you stay there, and if I hear another peep out of you, we'll make that two days in the hut, and you can scrub the outside of the building too. Several hours later, the classroom was empty, and Percy sat alone next to a bucket of bleach and a wash rag. Wall to wall and ceiling to floor, Miss Hartman had reminded him before turning on a heel and storming out of the schoolhouse. He was so sick of being in school, sick of the Miss Hartman, and sick of being constantly picked on. He hadn't done anything today, and now he was being forced to stay in this godforsaken building and scrubbing years of nasty dirt off the inside. Cleaning was supposed to be a woman's work. Percy ground his teeth. If it wasn't one thing, it was another. First, he'd been in trouble for chewing. Miss Hartman had humiliated him in front of his classmates and made him spit it out. Perfectly good tobacco had gone to waste. Then there was the sheep snafu, where Billy and Percy had decided to bring in several of Billy's sheep for a show and tell. How were they supposed to know that it was against the rules to bring a dozen sheep to school? Miss Hartman had about lost her mind that day, though, and Percy and Billy had been suspended from all recreation activities for a month. Percy kicked the bucket in irritation. Of course, there were also the countless battles over homework, another several incidents related to chewing, a number of fights with that pig girl Anna Grace, and now this. Percy hadn't even done anything. He had had about enough. Cleaning the schoolhouse was the last thing he wanted to do. In fact, if he had his way, then the thought hit Percy like a ton of bricks. His lips turned up in the corners of his mouth. Of course, it was brilliant. The perfect crime. Darling, did you hear? Mrs. Longhorn entered the room, filling the space with a cloud of Bois Brand perfume. It had been produced in none other than the most romantic, decadent and austere place in the world. Paris, France. Mrs. Longhorn could wear nothing else. Therefore, every time her dear husband took an international trip, he would pick up another bottle. Mr. Longhorn was at present comfortable in his leather chair. A Cuban cigar burned at his side, his eyes trained on the newspaper. He glanced up and peered at her through the silver-steel wire spectacles he used for reading. "'What is it, darling?' Mrs. Longhorn went to the cart their maid had left by the bay window and poured a cup of Earl Grey before turning back to her husband. "'You will never guess who was arrested for the second time.' "'My dear wife,' Mr. Longhorn was amused. "'That is old news. Mr. Iscariot was released several days ago.' He saw with satisfaction some of the delight drain out of his wife's face. It was not that he found pleasure in squashing her joy for gossip, but it did give him a tiny thrill to be ahead of the social curve for once. But Mrs. Albright insisted that he'd just been released. I trust the newspaper, dearest, not the town gossip. It was in the paper? Mrs. Longhorn was genuinely shocked. She sat down on the pale white Victorian sofa and gazed at her husband curiously. It is public knowledge, you know, who gets arrested. Fascinating. Mr. Longhorn folded his newspaper. I have learned quite a bit of late, reading in more detail the research of Watson. I do find it quite compelling. Is that so? Mrs. Longhorn took a dainty sip from her porcelain cup. Indeed, her husband nodded. He speaks quite eloquently on the topic of behaviourism, and I do believe that its implicative uses could be quite beneficial for the nefarious and wavered youth of today. What do you mean? Do you not agree that the young Mr. Iscariot's most recent behaviours put shame upon the family name? Of course, darling. 
Mrs. Longhorn nodded. It's an embarrassment, to be sure. But, dear wife, Mr. Longhorn raised a pointed finger, do remember our family is not blameless, for our firstborn spent his fair share of time behind bars. Oh, do not mention that. Mrs. Longhorn felt the blood draining from her face. Do not remind me of those horrible times. Incensed, Mr. Longhorn picked up his cigar and began to pace about the room, an idea brewing in his head. But you see, he began, even the most upstanding of families are at risk for social degradation due to the myopic insubordination of their youth. I dare say, darling, you've lost me. What I am saying, my love, is that though society shall quite rightly place shame upon the Iscariot name, that may not be entirely due to their breeding. Oh! Mr. Longhorn went back to his paper and opened the page where Watson's weekly column was printed. He lowered his glasses and began to read aloud. Psychology, as the behaviorist views it, Watson wrote, is a purely objective experimental branch of natural science. Its theoretical goal is the prediction and control of behavior. Introspection forms no essential part of its methods, nor is the scientific value of its data dependent on the readiness with which they lend themselves to interpretation in terms of consciousness. Mr. Longhorn looked up at his wife as though the paragraph should have eliminated any question at all from her mind. Uh, yes, dear, she managed to say from behind her cup. Introspection forms no essential part of its methods, Mr. Longhorn reiterated with enthusiasm. You see, it's all behavioural, rudimentary. If a youth is permitted to engage in felicitous behaviours, said behaviours will continue. You're saying that children act inappropriately because we allow them to? Mr. Longhorn nodded in approval. Quite right, my dear. I do believe you're catching on. Mrs. Longhorn flushed at the compliment. I'm also saying that youth are driven to behave like barbarians, and only the proper behavioristic training will eliminate such behavior from continuing to occur. Oh, so how does Watson suggest stopping our children from getting arrested? Mrs. Longhorn cut straight to the chase. By controlling their behavior. Mrs. Longhorn looked at her husband absolutely befuddled as he puffed on his cigar and looked out the front window. It is almost too easy, he murmured into the smoke. It's all quite fascinating, darling. Mrs. Longhorn had no idea what her husband was talking about, but she felt a thrill in her abdomen at his uncharacteristic passion. She admired him from her position on the sofa. His muscular body was a silhouette in the massive glass window. The white curtains created a soft frame around his dark-suited body. His salt-and-pepper-dusted hair was cut in a fashionable style, and to Mrs. Longhorn he was just as handsome as he had been the first moment she'd laid eyes on him over twenty years before. "'I shall be implementing some of Watson's recommendations with our youngest.' "'Oh, dear, are you sure?' Her husband turned toward her from the window. "'It shall be a jolly experiment.' "'But, but, but why?' I had been musing at the topic for some time, and my mother suggested it. Your mother, Mrs. Longhorn became uneasy. Y you spoke with your mother? Indeed, she shall be visiting us, he replied. Then, before his wife could protest, he went on with the conviction. We still have not learned where Lily Lou was several days ago.
Oh, yes, she disappeared for most of the day. Mrs. Longhorn let the topic of her mother-in-law go and focused on the issue in hand. She recalled the event her husband was referring to with chagrin. I do suspect that our daughter has eyes on a very unsuitable gentleman, Mr. Longhorn added, his eyes dark. The sergeant mentioned that Lily Lou was at the park when Mr. Iscariot was being arrested. Said she put up quite a fuss. Oh, do not even mention his name, Mrs. Longhorn said dramatically. Oh, darling, I feel ill, even thinking about him being my son-in-law. Quite right, Mr. Longhorn added. Her behavior is absolutely intolerable. I shall apply an undesirable consequence. But before Mr. Longhorn could go on, there was a knock on the door to the sitting room. I'll get it. Mrs. Longhorn set her teacup carefully on the table next to the sofa and went to the door. It was their maid. She curtsied silently and handed the mistress a telegram. Thank you. Mrs. Longhorn returned to the sofa and admired the heavy paper with the elegant calligraphy script. Who was at the door? Lady Lou breezed into the sitting room breathless. Her hair was styled and hung around her lovely face while she wore a pale blue gown that had a sensible collar about her neck. Pearls shimmered at her ears, and her bright eyes flashed with anticipation. A telegram! Mrs. Longhorn turned toward her husband. Darling, shall you like to open it? You may. He turned back toward the window, his thoughts racing with new ideas from his research. Then he heard a gasp from behind. He looked over his shoulder. What is it? It's from the Iscariot Manor. Mrs. Longhorn looked up from the letter. They're having a coming-out party for, for, for Mr. Iscariot. It says that they're inviting all the eligible females to the house to introduce them to Mortimer as an eligible bachelor. Mortimer? Lily Lou was all ears. Her heart thudded in her chest. Was it true? Had Mortimer finally decided he was ready to find a wife and settle down? Mrs. Longhorn's eyes began to glow. Why, it's been two years at least since I've been inside that house. Weren't you just commenting on the shame that that family's going to be enduring due to the young master's imprisonment? Mr. Longhorn jeered. He knew his wife desired to uphold the highest standards of propriety, but he also recognized that gleam in her eye when he saw it. Shame? Lily Lou was indignant. Mortimer was arrested in error. It was not his fault. A party at the Iscariot Manor, Mrs. Longhorn mused, ignoring her daughter. The Iscariots had always fascinated her. In fact, had their families not been in direct competition with each other, Mrs. Longhorn suspected that she and Mrs. Iscariot might have been quite good friends. Would you like to go? Her husband asked with a knowing look. Oh, dear, it would likely bring us shame, though, wouldn't it? She looked up from the letter, feeling quite torn. But, Mother... Indeed, associating with a family of such unscrupulous behaviour could reflect upon us unfavourably. But like you said, our dearest Reginald has quite recovered from his days of malfeasance. Lily Lou looked between her parents, confused by the conversational waltz they seemed to be engaged in. Yes, society quite respects him now, agreed Mr. Longhorn. And considering our businesses... His wife chewed her lip, making Mr. Longhorn smile. It was a behaviour she would never permit in public, because to her it was absolutely improper. However, at home her guard was down, and during those rare moments Mr. Longhorn saw her chew her lip. Business indeed. Oh, perhaps it would be beneficial to attend the party after all, for the sake of the company. Of course, 
Mr Longhorn grinned at his wife, who folded the invitation with satisfaction. "'Does that satisfy you, Lily Lou?' Mrs Longhorn glanced at her daughter. Lily Lou shook her head slightly, confused at what had just transpired. "'Yes, of course!' Everyone else in town will attend, of course, but they will go to gawk at the mansion and the family, and maybe to catch a glimpse of Mrs. Iscariot, but we shall only go for the purpose of business. Not for matchmaking, Mr. Longhorn looked at his daughter decidedly. Well, why ever not? I have an idea, Mr. Longhorn piped up with a smile. Let us bring along a little friend for our Lily Lou to socialize with. I imagine there will be other young ladies there for our youngest to entertain herself with. How about Mr. Brennard? Mr. Longhorn suggested. His father's in banking, quite a nice young gentleman. Wonderful idea, darling. Herbert, why would I bring a date to another man's coming out party? We wouldn't want to give the Ascariots the wrong impression. What kind of an impression would that be? Lily Lou dared to ask. Mr. Longhorn took a final drag from his cigar. That you were available, of course. He dashed Lilou's dreams in one fell swoop. But, but... He stubbed out his cigar into the Tiffany ashtray and started toward the door. Well, ladies, I shall be off. Where are you going, darling? Where else, my dear wife? I'm going to the office in preparation for Mortimer Iscariot's coming out party. "'Mortimer, Mrs. Dixon has something she must speak with you about. "'She was in town this afternoon, but she should be here at any moment,' "'Neville announced as he picked up the dishes from Mortimer's supper. "'He was referring to the party that they were having for Mortimer the coming weekend. "'In order to avoid the inevitable resistance that would occur, "'the staff had agreed to put off telling Mortimer until the very last moment. "'In response to Neville making conversation, Mortimer turned on the radio.' Neville rolled his eyes and continued cleaning up the mess from dinner. Almost all the arrangements for the party had been made. The menu was beautifully designed to include five elegant courses, bragging some of Mortimer's staple favourites. Additional help was hired to assist Mrs. Peabody in the cooking. Invitations were sent, decorations ordered, and landscapers were due the following afternoon. The objective was to drench the mansion in elegance, richness, and anything else that it would take to lure in a money-hungry female. Mrs. Dixon was pulling out all the stops for this party, Neville mused. That woman would stop at nothing to capture the future Mrs. Mortimer Iscariot. Neville had been given the daunting task of repairing the destroyed dining-room table. That or order an exact replica was what Mrs. Dixon had said. He felt a stir of anxiety in his chest as he stacked the remainder of Mortimer's dishes. Thanks to the late Mr. Iscariot's insufferable love for the unique and irreplaceable, the table was one of a kind. Neville had searched far and wide, and there was nothing even close to the original anywhere to be found. Also, with only one week's notice, it was absolutely impossible to find someone who had the skill and competency to repair the destroyed masterpiece. As a result, the party was in four days, and the door of the dining room was still strategically locked shut. A replacement for the table was yet to be procured. Mortimer! Mrs. Dixon stormed into the lounge, where Mortimer always retired to listen to the radio after eating his supper. Neville was holding the tray in white-gloved hands, and the stack of dishes jerked violently as he startled at Mrs. Dixon's voluminous entrance. He took a step away from the door as the nanny flew past him, stopping next to the young squire, who naturally had barely noticed the intrusion. 
He was at present dragging his pink flabby tongue along the creases in his fingers, ensuring that he had licked off every last bit of food from his evening meal. A voice barreled from the radio that rested next to Mortimer's massive, sweaty, cap-covered head. Well, with a jig and a shake, old Bobby really puts on the groove in this next classic set. Mortimer, I have just come from Peepers, and you will never guess who I ran into. Mortimer ignored Mrs. Dixon and turned up the volume on the radio. With melodies dating back from his first album, I Got a Crush, old Bobby captivates the audience with toe-tapping series that's sure to make you get up off your seat. Don't you turn the radio up on me, young man! Neville wasn't sure what to do as Mrs. Dixon stormed to the radio and clicked off the switch. I was listening to that! I have just come from Peepers. I heard that you assaulted a nun in the post office. A nun, Mortimer. Is this why you were arrested again? She looked over at Neville, who was attempting to sneak out through the door. You stay here, she demanded. Uh, But Mrs. Peabody... Mrs. Peabody can wait to do the dishes until we have finished. The post office was a den of aberration. I feared for my life. Mortimer trumpeted with indignation. Juveniles were running about assaulting one another. Why did you attack a nun? It is in my opinion that children are dilatorious to civility and safety. Mortimer was quite incensed now. It would be better for society as a whole to lock all children away until one may assure that their frontal lobes are developed enough not to be a danger to the health and wellness of this country's good patriots. Sister Agnes was evaluated by a doctor. She has quite a knot on her head. Mrs. Dixon attempted to redirect Mortimer to the matter in hand. It was a matter of life and death, the young man bellowed, his baritone voice all but shaking the silver on the tray. Despite the revolt that had broken loose in this city's dilapidated government facility, my illustrious acumen prevailed. How did Sister Agnes get Dinot on her head? Mortimer suddenly appeared to be incredibly pleased. In just two days, my letter will be in the hands of justice, and this reign of tyranny shall fall like the Ottoman Empire. Mrs. Dixon was becoming increasingly more confused. Why did George tell me that it was you that molested the nun, then? George is concocting fallacies. Eugene, came a squeak from the doorway to the lounge. Mrs. Dixon and Neville whirled around toward the entrance. The shadow of the mistress of the house darkened the floor of the room. The expression on her face was that of confusion, and she looked about as if searching for someone. "'Oh, forgive the noise, Mrs. Ascariot. Mortimer and I were just having a discussion,' Mrs. Dixon said apologetically. Mrs. Ascariot looked up toward the ceiling, as though realising for the first time that it was there. She was dressed in a black gown that was covered in beads, with fur around the collar. Her hair was an unruly mess and piled atop her head. It appeared that she had attempted to comb it, for the comb was actually still attached to the nuts, and hung down at the sides of her face. A bright red blotch of blush was on her right cheek, and she had quite effectively missed the left. Blue powder was drawn all around both eyes, and her lipstick was painted on like a clown. After several long moments... Neville cleared his throat and put on a polished smile. "'Mrs. Iscariot, you look rather fine this evening. "'I shall require a carriage. I've a date with Eugene. Oh, "'The carriage,' Neville said. He looked over to Mrs. Dixon for assistance. 
Why, yes, of course. Mrs. Dixon swatted Mortimer's hand as it shot out toward the radio. Then she turned and went to the woman in the doorway. How about I and Neville fetch Millie to bring you to your room? I will personally see about fetching the carriage for you. Neville set the tray down and was at Mrs. Iscariot's side in a moment. Of course. Be sure to wash behind your ears, Mrs. Iscariot called over her shoulder as she allowed herself to be drawn away from the room. Mrs. Dixon took a slow breath in and went to Mortimer's side. Mortimer, I must speak with you about something very important. She seated herself on the sofa opposite him. Most assuredly, my cognitive facilities will be better served by the radio, came the disgruntled reply. Be that as it may, I do feel obligated to tell you that this weekend we are having a party. Hmm. It is a party for you to find a wife. Her mistress shall not permit it! Mortimer leapt up in passion. Sit down! Mrs. Dixon refused to listen to another rant again. Her head was killing her, and all she wanted to do was to get this conversation over so she could go and have a nice cup of tea and a bath. Don't you say another word. You need a wife, and I need to go back to Jamaica. The party is on Saturday, and on Friday we will be doing classes to retrain you how to behave like a civilised human being. Seeing as you have been to jail twice... I'm very concerned about your ability to remember how to be a proper gentleman. Mortimer's face was scrunched up in a ball, his moustache twitching at his internal battle between respecting his nanny and fighting against the terrible news he had just been delivered. Mrs. Dixon stood up in satisfaction. I know that you want to go to the festival this weekend and next, and it is my understanding that the Esquire is leaving on Sunday. If you behave and do as I tell you, you will be permitted to go. If, on the other hand, you do not behave, you will be forced to remain on the grounds and to assist Millie with the weeding for the rest of the summer. And with that, Mrs. Dixon turned on her heel and strode triumphantly from the room, leaving behind her a shocked and speechless Mortimer Iscariot. Learn more at www.mortimabook.com. Copyright 2022, M.W. Cedars. Written by M.W. Cedars, the author's pseudonym, audiobook performance by Michael Drew. Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots, or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.